Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Uh, And I wanted to underscore the conversations part. Some of the feedback I get from the show sometimes is people go, well, it's pretty good, but uh, you sure go on a lot sometimes. And that's part of the point. Uh, uh, I'm not interested in just being an interviewer. I'm interested in in chatting with people and, and, and bouncing ideas around and see where that goes, which is also part of the reason that a lot of times I have people on the show that nobody really knows who they are, because they, they do their wonderful work, uh, you know, outside of the, the hot glare of, uh, of internet uh, celebrity or, you know, mainstream celebrity, um, because I'm more interested in, in the conversations than I am in just uh, gaining followers by pursuing the, uh, the famous um, which is one way of introducing our uh, guest today. Uh, he's an old friend of mine, uh, one of the uh, number of really wonderful people I met and befriended when I went to Rice University to get my uh, PhD. He was also in uh, the religious studies program and uh, also working on uh, some modern uh, currents of uh, alternative spirituality and uh, particularly uh, Gnosticism. Uh, Matt Dillon is currently uh, an assistant professor at DePauw University, and he wrote his dissertation, uh, which is called The Heretical Revival, the Nag Hammadi Library in American Religion and Culture. And it really tracks how the Nag Hammadi Library, which is the central repository of what we know about ancient Gnosticism uh, in, in, in all its varied and sometimes contradictory forms, uh, you know, it, it, it sort of uh, appeared uh, on the, the world stage uh, around World War II. And uh, Philip K. Dick, anyway, thought that by opening up the Nag Hammadi Library, a virus was released uh, that sort of spread through people's eyeballs and would turn them into homeoplasmates that were open to the Gnostic signal. Um, Matt does a slightly more (laughs) grounded uh, tracking of uh, this virus, uh, looking at the ways in which the actual texts of the Nag Hammadi were read and reread in a myriad of ways over the last, you know, 50, 70 years. Um, as part of the kind of huge post-war change in spirituality and, uh, and religious practice and overlaps a lot of uh, the things I've been interested in. So we're going to be talking about uh, modern Gnosis, but particularly focusing later on on the, the question of the archons, who have uh, these sort of Gnostic super baddies who have come to wield uh, increasingly large uh, power over uh, the conspiracy imagination. And now you can find discussions about the Archons uh, all over the place for some very good sociopolitical reasons, uh, as well as for uh, some uh, curiously imaginative and in some ways paranoically over-the-top reasons. So uh, no further ado, Matt, welcome to uh, to Expanding Mind. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Very good. And uh, where where is DePauw University? It's about 45 minutes outside of Indianapolis, a uh, little, small little farm town. And then, uh, you know, it's funny, the name of it, every time I, I hear the name DePauw, I, I kind of think of like a bear, like I just see like this, <laughs> like a, like a paw, <laughs> but it's, yeah. it's not named after a bear. <laughs> Unfortunately, no, no, no. <laughs> And it would be even better if the mascot were a bear. But uh, we are 
what tigers, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that makes, I guess that makes a little bit more sense. So, so uh, uh, you know, one thing I, I was just reading through your, your, your dissertation and you, you have, uh, uh, you know, a, a, an interesting introduction about the, the reasons behind it, your interest in tracking the Nag Hammadi library and how Gnosticism has figured in modern American spirituality and and Christianity uh, as well, and, uh, and and so I just wanted to invite you to tell a little bit about that story of like how how personally you came to be interested in these uh, in these fascinating if somewhat recondite texts. Yeah, uh, so I <clears throat> when I went into grad school, I, I should say that I didn't intend on doing this. Right, it wasn't my my sort of primary interest at the time, um, but on in a longer view, it makes a lot of sense that I ended up going into this project. Uh, I was raised in a very religious household. Uh, parents met at Bible college. It was you know for most of the family, it was um, our fundamentalists who think the Earth is sixty four hundred years old. It was a very you know. Um, culturally Christian sort of household that I grew up in. And that just didn't stick for me, not even a little bit uh, growing up. And, but at the same time, I started to have uh, through various channels from meditation to fevers when I was a young, young kid, et cetera, these sort of anomalous experiences that I, I couldn't really fit into the symbolic as it were. And and so this this sort of tension between this this Christian symbolic and being disconnected from it was was front of my mind for a long time. And uh, when I went to Rice and I started to study this material, uh, I set out on okay, I'll I'll do this project, right? I'll see how people have read the Nagmati Library in America, and I just assumed that it was going to be you know the coterminous with people wanting to be Gnostics. Right, the the Gnostics will read the Nagamati Library, and, and that will be that, and so Gnostic churches, what have you. Uh, but that didn't prove to be the case. As I started to do a lot of this spade work, uh, it's certainly an element of it. But what I found, sort of again and again, was that as people, uh, you know, sort of primary figures in the reception history, like Elaine Pagels or uh, Stephen Holler, or Philip K. Dick, for that matter, as they're reading the Nakamondi Library, a lot of what's happening there is a reinterpretation of the symbols uh, within the Christian tradition, uh, primarily Jesus, right, providing new ways of understanding him, but also Mary Magdalene, right, or uh, figures of that nature. And so what I started to notice is that there were that these reinterpretations were largely about rediscovering a, a sort of connection to the Christian symbolic that was outside, or at least part of an expanded version of this tradition. And I'll stop there if we want to. Yeah, you know, I know there's, there, you, you covered a, a couple of in, in, interesting things. I mean, one thing is I can't help but want to ask you a little bit about these anomalous experiences, and but also to invite you to describe what you mean about the tension between the anomalous and the symbolic. I think that's a really important idea that, you know, we, we talk a lot about 
this show, I'm interested in anomalous experiences. Um, but, but one way of talking about them is, you know, we grow up in sort of symbolic universes that are already existing before we show up. And let's say we're, we're raised in a Christian household. So that, that, those are the terms of our universe. They, that's, that's the given. That's the natural background. But if we find ourselves, for whatever reason, breaking away from that, no longer able to live in that symbolic, even as the people around us continue to maintain it, we have these strong feelings of alienation, of, of loss, of mourning, of confusion, of resistance, anger. But, and, and there's something about that process, if I understand you know, part of the way you set up your argument, there's something about that process uh, that not only creates a sense of alienation and a, and a desire for either new symbols or revisions of the existing symbols, which is what you're talking about here. But it's not just the desire for this, for, for new symbols, but that it actually kind of helps create the space for anomalous experiences that you're going to find more anomalous experiences when there's more social, social alienation from the, the sort of main symbolic stories. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, there's two things there, but, and I think they're both really interesting. The first one, the, the primary theorist here, uh, was a psychologist of religion named Peter Homans. And he wrote books like Ability to Mourn, which is the most important version of this, and also other essays on mourning. And the point that he makes is that we, or as human beings, when we become part of a religion, we become attached to those symbols in the same way that we become attached to other human beings, a parent, a lover, what have you. And when we are, when we lose somebody, right? When somebody dies, you go through a process of mourning. You feel uh, disoriented. You feel at a loss. You feel grief. You lose your sense of self, your sense of coherence in a way. And the point that Peter Homans makes, and he, he really flushes it out very well, is that the same sort of mourning process happens when we lose our religion, right? And when we lose contact with these symbols. And when we lose that, that sort of contact, contact to the orienting symbolic, as he points out, that's when all the weird shit starts to happen, right? Because the, the weird shit, the anomalous shit, has a container within this sort of symbolic universe that we belong to. And it can either be explained if we have those experiences still, or it can actually keep them repressed, right? Because your sort of uh, psychological energy is being channeled into these symbols. And so what happens often in the reception of the Nakamadi and obviously elsewhere too, is that when people lose their religion, they lose their, their contact to mainstream Christianity, these anomalous experiences just start. Right. And so you have grief and depression and, you know, a, a sense of a lack of self-certainty. But then there's also a lot of you know, throughout my study, you'll see out of body experiences or uh, obviously the Philip K. Dick type experiences, the Grant Morrison type experiences. Right. Uh, Elaine Pagels talks at great length about her, her period of mourning, uh, sort of leaving the church. And so they begin to, through the Nakamadi, reinterpreted these symbols in ways that they can feel part of Christianity again, or if not Christians per se, at least have a connection to those symbols. Yeah, I mean, what, for me, one of the, the the ways it comes home is to just think about uh, all these different Jesuses. You know, there's something about you know because we all. 
you know, the, when we say Jesus, everybody gets a picture in their head, whether they want to or not, whether they're Christians or not. There's some kind of like, there's a guy, right? And it's like, who is that guy? And, and in a way, it feels like one of the things that you're mourning, particularly as a Christian, because there's such an emphasis on some relationship with, mm-hmm. with Jesus in some traditions, a very, very personal relationship, and in other places, maybe a little more abstract and symbolic, but still, you know, so much is mediated through this figure that one way of looking at what happens with, with the Gnostic Gospels and this kind of heretical Christianity is a sort of revision of who Jesus is, like what, what, what's different about it. And in a way it's a lot, a lot of the fun is there because it's like, who is, you know, like who, who is the Jesus, you know, who, how, what, what does he, what does he, does he look sly? Is he a magician? Uh, is he a magic worker? Is he heal? Is he, is he cracking jokes? You know, it's like, who is he? And so maybe could you talk a little bit about how the figure of Jesus changes in as people try to re- renegotiate their kind of loss of conventional Christianity and discover it again or reframe it through uh, not the Gnostic texts? Absolutely. So in the sort of broader conversation about mourning, the, the background to it is are all these major sociological shifts that happened uh, in the 60s and after. Right, and so and anything that comes as part of the counterculture, right? So you have the sexual revolution, you have feminism, civil rights, um, you have late capitalism or sort of neoliberal economic policies. You have the advent of the internet and the this sort of striking religious pluralism, right? And so as a huge number of figures start to reinterpret Jesus, they start to bring in or negotiate him with these changes that are occurring within the sort of American context. So a number of them will have Jesus become this very uh, sort of pro-sexual Jesus, right? The most obvious example and the most uh, telling one being the, the Da Vinci Code. Right. I mean, that ended up being an enormous sensation. But there are also a number of other sort of imagined novels where he becomes a kind of sex magician with Mary Magdalene or something of that nature. Right. Um, Oftentimes, Jesus is reframed as sort of an Eastern sage or wisdom teacher. One of the first people to actually read the Gospel of Thomas was Rajneesh. Right. Uh, so Osho, and he gave a commentary on it in like 1975, in which Jesus had traveled first to Egypt and then to India to learn the um, sort of mystical backdrop of India and bring it into a Palestinian context. And so for uh, these people that are reimagining Jesus, it's one that connects them to this new religiously plural space. Uh, it's one who is pretty... Uh, sort of democratic, right? He's divine, but he's trying to teach us that we're all divine, right? As you see in the Gospel of Thomas in the language of the twin. Uh, so he's not somebody you worship or look up to or a sort of divine figure that we're under the rule of, right? He's, he's just another figure. He's a leader, but he's a leader to his own state. Um, and I'll stop there if there's you want to tease any of that out. Yeah, it's no, it's just an interesting uh, thing to me. You know, maybe it's, um, you know, I think part of what happened in the counterculture is that you is that there was like Jesus was up for grabs, you know, and, and which is in a way a lot more interesting story to track than 
Jesus is overthrown, you know, or that we no longer yeah. care about Jesus. You know, if you look at and I think it was more true of the 60s for obvious reasons. There's more more of the countercultural, you know, the young people in the counterculture were brought up Christian than probably today. People are brought up Christian. Uh, and so it's no accident that a lot of them had these like Jesus trips, which is a kind of classic you know, acid experience, you know, even if people weren't Christians, they would have these experiences of being Jesus on the cross or these kinds of compassion, uh, you know, these sort of apocalyptic moments. Um, and then, you know, in addition, there was sort of, you know, Jesus Christ superstar and the rise of, of the Jesus freaks who originally, you know, very early on were more countercultural people who had a very different vision of Jesus. And there's those famous posters of Jesus as an outlaw. And so their Jesus was deeply countercultural against the, you know, war machine, against industrial civilization, against capitalism. It was for principles of the, you know, communalism and, and, you know, small scale intimate relationships and all this kind of, you know, thing. And so it, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating way to kind of track, uh, you know, the ways in which the counterculture and earlier American religion are part of the same process rather than just emphasizing the way there's sort of a, a difference or a distinction or a rejection or a, a, a full heterodoxy. There's sort of a way in which like, you know, Jesus never leaves the story. It's just changes masks and, and including taking him up to the, to the contemporary moment where you find there's all sorts of, you know, like militant Jesuses, you know, all the like all, the, the alt-right Christians, you know, they have <laughs> really crazy Jesus that wasn't, wasn't any more recognizable to an old school, you know, Baptist from the 1940s than the hippie Jesus was. Uh, so it, it just it just kind of um, it kind of keeps changing. But of course, it's not just about uh, Jesus. It's also about a whole model of what spirituality is, what spiritual transformations are. And in that way, uh, you know, at some point, at what point do people, if they're really going into Gnosticism, kind of have to leave at least a lot of conventional Christian theology behind and kind of go, well, I guess maybe I'm really more of a Gnostic. I mean, Dick talks about this too. You can, you can read through the exegesis and you can see him kind of wrestling with these two identities for, he's like, sometimes he's like, I'm a Christian. I'm a, just a Christian. I'm Episcopal. I'm a Christian. And other times he's like, I'm a Gnostic through and through. And even though there's overlaps, those two meet, those two identities are overlapping. They're definitely not the same thing. So what is that thing that's in the kind of contemporary self-identified Gnostic, even Christian Gnostic, that's not the same thing as mainline Christianity? Yeah. So... <clears throat> I want to go back to, to answer this question. I want to go back and, and sort of flesh out. There's the other sort of dimension of what I worked on with the Nakamadi, and that's this, this issue of memory and this is issue of history, right? So in addition to kind of just reinterpreting Jesus and getting hippie Jesus, sex magician Jesus, shamanic Jesus, all these sorts of things, the other really important thing that the non-commodity library impacted was our understanding of what Christian origins were and Christian history is. And what it has sort of led to is this idea that Christian origins is almost reopened in a way. And we can start to talk about it in all these different ways and uh, sort of reimagine the, the sort of historical context and therefore say, well, even if 
uh, mainstream Christianity ended up going in this particular direction, that's not how it was supposed to be, right? The Nagamati Library takes us back to a Christianity before the Gospels, right? And definitely before the creeds and before the Catholic Church and things like that. So um, what you see with a lot of Gnostic figures, self-identified Gnostics, and I would definitely classify Dick this way, is a way of kind of reimagining, you know, in a very imaginative way, uh, the Christian past so that they're able to have, to see Jesus or to see Christ in this sort of very new theological way, but say that that's also true, right? That's also correct and that the tradition went in a different direction. Um, so that's the, the first part. Um, so sorry, what was... Uh, well, so we were talking about like just how how people reimagine, you know, Christianity in Gnostic terms and at what point do they kind of leave the field of you know, conventional Christianity, or is it, is that part of the point is that it is that Gnosticism allows people to kind of stay in the orbit of Christianity with, with without being attached to the creed or, uh, the politics. Um, but they're still sort of in the symbolic universe. So it's still kind of comforting, but they're, they're still not, you know, there's, there's still a difference. So there's still kind of a, a gap between them and, and, and Christianity. Yeah. So there's, Thank you for that. So there's sort of a, there's two different ways that that, that sort of Gnostic thrusts end up going, because there's the, the uh, Christian tradition is itself somehow, and this can sort of lead us into Archon talk, kind of dermonic, right? There's that, that scene in uh, the exegesis where the uh, early uh, Christian figures are praying to Satan, right? Um, or you see in the work of like John Lamb Lash, the early Christian tradition had completely, uh, was essentially a um, mind parasite, right? That was spread through other people. But there was this other way of being sort of Gnostic, right? That, that was much richer, that was much more about uh, spiritual experiences, anomalous experiences, psychedelia, ecology, right? Things of that nature. Um, so with a certain type of Gnostic, like the Gnostic churches, they see themselves as still belonging to the Catholic tradition, right? They're, they're part of these, um, uh, these churches that still have, uh, have been, or have maintained, uh, you know, they've been ritually brought into the Catholic Church, but aren't acknowledged by Rome. And for them, it's really important to say the tradition can be a little broader. And theologically, they very much look at Jesus in a much more Gnostic light, sort of emphasizing the Christ over the physical body, not looking at the resurrection as being foundational, and are much more um, invested in figures like Valentinus. Whereas those who want to become Gnostic that are more critical might identify with the Sethian movement where you have these, this much more sort of evil dimension, right? This more uh, sort of oppressive archon figure. And they use that to malign 
the Christian church as it is. But even when they do that, figures like Grant Morrison or John Lamlash, they still end up reinterpreting Jesus and finding this connection, which is the thing I found most interesting. That is, that is really interesting. But I want, I want to unpack some of this more, you know, kind of Sethian uh, approach, because, you know, w- what we had originally talked about with this uh, conversation was to focus on the archons. You and I were both at a conference on Gnosticism in, in American religion or contemporary America. And we both talked in different ways about the, the, the figure of the archon and, and, and uh, how that's, in a way, one of the places where you can see the difference between different ways, or, different ways that people interpret Gnosticism. Uh, like, for example, you talk about, uh, you know, Elaine Pagels. That was the first book about Gnosticism I read, like a lot of people, the Gnostic Gospels, I think, in the late 70s. And... You know, uh, it's a very sort of kind of gently feminist, sort of positive, progressive, humanistic uh, picture of of Gnosticism, um, which, as you point out to me, as you pointed out to me, didn't have uh, doesn't mention the Archons once. When nowadays the Archons are probably known by more people who know that they come from Gnostic, you know, that it's a Gnostic figure. You know, it's become such a a, fi- a part of conspiracy culture uh, and, and even just a more almost a, a way of just noting the kind of bizarre uh, social media, uh, global power, economic structure that we live in right now. So to not to get into that quite yet, let's just talk a little bit about who the archons were in the, 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 in the Gnostic texts that are most, uh, influenced by this idea of a kind of lower power or principality that runs the world, uh, that we live in. Yeah. <clears throat> so the, Archons are everywhere uh, throughout the Nakamadi Library, but their most sort of robust depiction and their most important one is in texts that are typically referred to as Sethian because the figure of Seth, the third son of Adam and Eve, uh, is noted as savior and revealer in these texts. And it's within those texts that you see the archons in, in much of the light that we kind of come to understand them popularly. So you have the birth of Yaldabaoth as in these very harsh terms as an abortion, right? And he's this demented evil figure. He's not this, this more like maybe perverse or maybe slightly, uh, you know, psychologically askew that you see in Valentinia. He's evil. And he gives birth to seven archons who are mapped onto the seven planets as they understood them in the ancient world. And the, these archons see this uh, illuminated uh, anthropos, right? The primordial anthropos, primordial atom uh, above the spheres, right? And decide, oh, we need to capture that. And we need to, we need to capture that light, the divine light that, that we're not part of. And so they weave together. And in the, the most famous version, the secret book of John, there's 365 demons that are sort of, uh, knitting together the soul of the first Adam. And he's not able to rise, right? When they're all said and done with that, they couldn't animate it, literally. And so uh, Sophia tells Yaldabaoth, hey, if you blow into his mouth, he'll, he'll rise up. And by doing that, they pass on the light, right? They pass on the divine quality from Yaldabaoth, her son, into the human being. And then Archons realize, oh, shit. 
right? This, this is a very, this person is much more powerful than we are, right? So we, we need to trap it again. We need to make it forget. And so they, they start to, they put them inside an actual material body. They put them inside a, a sort of material earth, right? And the material earth, the psychic body, all our passions, our drives, desires, sexuality, etc. they're all ways of keeping us sort of trapped and locked in with, within their sort of prison, this prison of the spirit, right? And so it's, it's then our goal to find a way to evade the archons, right? It's, we have to find an escape, right? Get out of this cosmos they created, this evil matter and this, this prison of the soul. We have to find freedom from that and return to the sort of celestial home. It's such a remarkable story, you know, when you, when you lay it out that way with, with that detail. Uh, you know, I, it, it brings back to me the first time I encountered these texts when I was an undergraduate um, at, at Yale, and I was already kind of reading Phil Dick, and I was interested in postmodern philosophy and ideas about the simulacrum and all this kind of, it all started to fit together in probably a, an overly feverish way, I might say, in retrospect. But one of the things that struck me at the time is just, it's how, how science fictional it is, how conspiracy theory it is. It's like, you know, I've read a lot of ancient literature, a lot of mythology, and yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff in mythology and different belief systems and all this kind of thing, but there's something peculiarly present about the, the paranoia, if you will, of of this view and and it's you know, sort of no accident that we see something you know like the matrix come along which is just this perfect perfectly keyed contemporary myth about technology and and control and has nothing really to do with any sort of re particular re religious tradition on its surface and yet it resonates so intensely with this basic kind of gnostic myth uh, with all of its elaborate details, all of its sort of um, almost, you know, it's like almost like a spy novel. They got to hide, you know, we're tricking them and we trick them this way. And then once through this, we got to pretend, got to make them forget. And it's, you know, the, we're, we're in that, you know, we're watching The Prisoner again or we're in a Philip K. Dick novel. Um, what, do you have that sense? And, and what what is it in the the ancient world, I know it's a complicated question, you could talk for hours about it, but but what is your basic sense of in the ancient world, what were the conditions that led to this particular kind of story coming up when it, it's kind of unusual for ancient religious mythology, that degree of sort of paranoia about the world? Uh, what What's going on there? Yeah, well, yeah, that is an enormous question. Um, and, and sort of put it in context, um, so that's really the thing that's coming to mind right now and hearing you talk about it and then going through this myth as, as I've just been thinking it through in advance of this interview is I, I keep coming back to Culiano, right? Ion Culiano's Tree of Gnosis and this sort of foundational idea, uh, this, this notion of morphodynamics that it doesn't matter where human beings are in the world at a specific time uh, or place. They will, it's, if not inevitable, it's likely they'll come to a certain idea as this sort of form. And this idea is that one, we are not made for this world, right? The denial of the anthropic principle. We are somehow distinct from it. It is, it is somehow unhealthy for us, whatever the, 
that part of the human being is. And the second point that uh, the creator God or the God immediately above us is somehow evil. Right, it is disinclined towards us. It is it is not helpful. It is not benign or merciful. It is it is dangerous in certain ways. And once you take that system of ideas or the or the that pair of ideas and pair it with uh, Genesis, it sort of naturally works itself out into this very very dark, oppressive sort of uh, prison metaphor, right? Um, I mean, part part of it is like I I, I always imagine like you're in the, you know you're whatever you're in uh, you're in Alexandria in you know 200 A.D. and you believe in the conventional account of in Genesis, uh, you know like you know God does this and we we you know we we blew it Adam blew it and then we got kicked out and you know it's a bummer and then you yeah. like you meet an you meet a gnostic and they're like no no it's all you've got it all wrong it's that's the evil guy you know and it's so extreme um and yet it, it it's familiar because it's so much like the way that conspiracy theory works today and i mean that you know it's always tricky when you talk about conspiracy theory because you have to acknowledge that there are true conspiracies and then there are conspiracies that are clearly you know, psychopathological and, 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 you know, uh, illusory delusional. And then there's a lot of stuff that's in between and it's, you know, it's a complicated topic, but, but one of the ways that it works is to precisely do that. It's like, Oh yeah, you have that idea. No, the moon landing was faked. You know, it's like you had, you think it was this, it's the reverse of what you're, what you're thinking of. And it, and it often turns on these issues of trickery of, of simulacrum of illusions, of misdirection of magic in that sense. Um, and it's like, is it, is this something, you know, archetypal about people or does it say something about modernity that like in some ways the ancient world was more modern than we think it was so that there's, it's no accident. There's a kind of a resonating, you know, kind of conspiracy uh, mindset that, that that's going on there. Yeah. That's interesting. So the, there's another way of thinking about this, but with that that particular cluster of that those revisions of Genesis, the and Yale debate, etc., most scholarship, Berger Pearson, etc., place that within a sort of Jewish context, right? That these were Jewish authors who were sort of inverting and revising their understanding of Genesis. So why would they be doing that? Doing that because of hundreds upon hundreds of years of persecution, the end or the destruction of the second temple, the diaspora, they're, they're responding to certain dislocations within the environment. And within the conspiracy theory, even though we're in a very sort of wealthy time, generally speaking, within sort of first world Western context, what have you, that a lot of these theories come from, they feel very marginalized and very dislocated. Right, they're they're under threat from the outside, and uh, <clears throat> within the these sort of alt right conspiracies, it's it's very much a part of that as well. Well, let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, one of your side projects that you presented at uh, the conference we were at, it, it, you know, it was tracing some modern views of the archons to, to see the way that the, the figure of the archon as something that emerges from the, this Gnostic tendency got mixed up with other 
ideas inside a conspiracy theory and is now, you know, increasingly a kind of recognizable idea or figure within a lot of different conspiracies. Um, and you talk about a couple of people who have really um, put that forward. So, you know, what was, what was it like to dive into the mind of David Icke, you know, uh, maybe talk about his story because it's, uh, it's such a pivotal one. I mean, he's, he, he really has had an enormous influence on things. Yeah. So uh, Ike is an interesting character, right? <laughs> Full stop. Um, but he has the, you know, he, long background. He grew up in, and he was playing for Premier League soccer clubs, right? And then uh, he becomes like a television anchor or a weatherman. He turns from there to become like a major leader in the Green Party. But in 19. Uh, 90, I want to say is the first one. I, I forget the dates on here. He goes to Peru and he feels sort of compelled to go there. And when he goes to Peru, he suddenly feels this shock of electromagnetic currents, as he understands it, sort of shooting through his body, or as we might understand it, the subtle body, right? That, that's just wholly opening, healing, awakening. And then later on, uh, he goes to a psychic and uh, the figure of the psychic or speaking through the psychic tells him, we are here to uh, give you these these new texts, these new understandings. And you are going to play an important role as the person who is taking this wisdom from us into the world. And so he ends up, from that moment on, more or less starts to write the write his much more um, sort of religious type literature starting in the, the mid 90s. Right. And all of the things that he's most famous for, right? This idea of a race of lizard people, right? And the matrix, right? We're trapped in a hologram. All of these sorts of things already pre-existed uh, his exposure to the archons. Um, but then in about 2011, he, and as best as I can track this, he seems to come to the Archons through the work of another conspiracy theorist, John Lamb Lash, and adopts much of his framework and his understanding of the Nakamati text. And the Archons provide this perfect, perfect symbol for this super conspiracy, right? These figures that are sort of keeping us trapped within a, a sort of mind prison that are in charge of politics, right? That use religion uh, in order to get us to concentrate our energy on symbols so that these archons can feed off our energy in certain ways. Uh, ones that are disinclined so they uh, have sort of instituted satanic rituals in order to get people to become scared and fear and those sorts of emotions are again uh, food for the archons as it were and the notion that archons are able to or in deep history created adam and eve lends itself very well to a discourse that already existed of this fear of genetic um, mutation, right, or genetic editing. And so you find the concept of uh, within Atlantis, the archons or their sub henchmen were down here uh, manipulating our DNA, right, uh, in order to keep us trapped. And with David Icke, a lot of that stems with or uh, surrounds the idea of 
they either uh, expanded or they actually implanted our reptilian brain, right? That part of us that's very sort of fearful and angry, all those, again, those sort of luscious emotions for the archons, they put those in human beings so that they could be more easily controlled and they could give us food, the archons food. You know, it's fascinating when you talk about this because it, it, it brings up this this question that, that in a way also goes back to... Uh, to, to how we interpret um, the ancient Gnostics, which is that when we see these figures, these myth, mythological, imaginal figures, or, or you know, figures of uh, of uh, the fantastic, um, you know, we we can't help but kind of see them as, as sort of allegories. If we're if we're trying to interpret them and not take them at face value, we see them as allegories for something that's kind of real, and that's what's sort of weird about conspiracy theory that makes it um, not just even appealing, but an important thing to pay attention to is that it feels like you can almost tap into the kind of dream, the dreaming mind of contemporary society in in terms of the, what are the symbols that resonate? What are the fears that, that take on phantasmic form? What are the actual social conditions that are causing the most sort of you know, symbolic craziness. You can kind of track like whatever, in this case, um, genetic engineering or, you know, fears about uh, media manipulation. And there's so much stuff to be afraid about now. There's so many things that are, that are, that people I think are even aware of how they're, they're trapped in, in certain patterns of, of negative emotions, just through the media, just through, you know, reading the news or, or feeling like you're being manipulated and then you're angry and then you like find out more and da da da. And it, and that it, it feels to me that one of the reasons that the idea of the archons is so attractive is, is it creates a, an explanation for this condition we're in. And then you get back to like one of just the core problems in theology or core problems in, in religion, which is just how do you explain, uh, the evil in the world and the archons do a really good job in some ways. Yeah. I, I like that idea of the conspiracy theory as this, this kind of dreaming brain of society. Um, as I was getting into this literature, cause I'd covered a lot of the other interpretations, the more subdued interpretations of the archons, right. As, these sort of limitations in our own person or, you know, the, the kind of evil impulses or the, the more um, carnal impulses that we have to wrestle with, right? There's these ways of making them sort of palatable creatures. But then when you get into the conspiracy literature, they are there in, in all their fullness, right? In all their, their sort of uh, evil trickery. And, and going through and reading this material, even though on one level, it's, oh, this is, this is pretty nutso, right? Like the, this concern with uh, chemtrails or the idea that uh, Saturn and the moon are hollow and that they're, this is David Icke, and the archons are beaming this sort of information via light into our eyeballs in order to keep us trapped in their simulation. Uh, well, this is a little nutso, but on a... a more dream interpretive level, this paranoia towards the fact that technology is everywhere. It's completely suffocating and inescapable, right? That does jive, right? Or 
the uh, issues of genetic engineering or all these new understandings of the body, right? This, we don't fully understand these things yet, right? Like this is, this is scary. Viruses are scary. Um, DNA is scary, right? Um, politics are, are completely overwhelming, right? And, and what is happening there. Um, and as you point out, this issue of theodicy is super important, right? Because the idea for many that evil is the privation of good or is is something that's somehow not real becomes more and more difficult to to uh keep uh, or to accept right when you just turn on the news at any point now right so it it's <clears throat> It's a little bit feverish, or it's certainly feverish, these conspiracy theories, but it also does come from a, a core that is easily sympathized with. You know, and one of the other things is that if you dial down that, that the, the, the feverishness of it, you also you kind of get towards something that's sort of like social criticism. You know, uh, I think one of the things we're talking about here is how the tendency, which has been very much a part of alternative spirituality through the 20th century, to psychologize everything, to psychologize the images and mythology, in some sense isn't really working that well anymore. Like, so in the, you know, maybe in the 70s, you might be a Jungian and you would read of the story of the Archons. You say, well, this is about the structure of the psyche and how we deal with the uh, shadow. And and so uh, when you're, you know, liberated from the from the, the world of the Archons, it's just a, it's a symbol for uh, integrating the shadow and, you know, coming to individuation or something like that. And then, you know, at some point, you're like, you know, that's not really cutting it. You know, the problem is not just in me. You know, there's a, there's something out there. You know, Dick talks about that a lot, too. It's like it's in the world. There's a crack in reality. There's something broken. There's a brokenness about this situation that we're in. So let's try to look look for it. And uh, and what I was kind of sort of stumbled on when I was thinking I was thinking a lot about psychedelic mysticism and I was thinking a lot about the sort of 60s and their kind of vision of the liberated person you know the person who you know basically the idea is that like you know children are naturally free and wonderful and that if we break off our our social roles and our social programming what's going to naturally emerge is something better something more innocent something more loving something more creative and, and peaceful this was a you know one of the basic myths so they had a you know a very strong sense of the positive that you know the body's good, sex is good, uh, nature's good, uh, people doing stuff together is pretty cool. Like you don't want to fight war, that's bad. But then you get in this problem again. It's this theodicy. Where does the bad stuff comes from? And I was going through. Oh yes, yeah, so they have they have to have their own archons. And the way, you know, they don't use that language. They they don't they don't say the word archon. But a, a lot of texts, it's all about society. It's all about social programming. It's like everything's cool. And there's even a, a wonderful um, little uh, version of the, of the Genesis story that Timothy Leary has in, in his book, How to, uh, to start, start Your Own Religion. And he talks about, yeah, it's like you're born and you're just part of, you know, a million, billions of years of DNA evolution and you're at one with the nature and you're here to experience, you know, this very positive view of embodied 
uh, you know, life on the planet. But, but then he goes, but then people start, there's too many people and they start creating society. And once you have society, then suddenly that's where the evil comes in. It's, or, uh, or the darkness, because suddenly you're abstracted from your body and then you have these social roles and you're, you're told things that are incorrect. And so a lot of the whole sixties thing was to like break these things down and liberate you know, the, the, the self within. So, in a, but in a weird way, it's a lot like an archon model where it's like the powers of society are the things that are constraining us. And we can take that into the fully, you know, paranoid uh, lizard overlords thing, or we can just sort of be like critical sociologists and go, yeah, society's bad. It programs us. And it's really, really hard to get out of it. So, in some ways, there's more of a continuity between some of these views and a more conventional critical perspective than I think is always, uh, always, uh, you know, apparent. Um, but, uh, you know, you can respond to that. But I also had an, a, a particular question, which is like in the 60s, there was this very positive sense about the liberated soul, the innocent soul, the, the, the happy soul that could be released if we could just, you know, break down. Uh, conventional social forms, but in these more modern uh, archon conspiracies, they're so dark. It's not really clear what what anybody can do. So, what are the what are the forms of escape or transcendence or salvation that you find in these more contemporary uh, claustrophobic views of of the archons? Yeah. So first, just thank you for that. That was great. And in terms of this. First thing, 60s continuity and, and the issue of society as archon. Uh, one of the things that you see in early neo-Gnosticism, and, and particularly like Ecclesia Gnostica of Stephen Huller, who's deeply influenced by Jung, uh, is this reframing of cosmos not as the material cosmos, right? He, he puts that aside because he's very pro-nature, uh, but instead cosmos as order. Right, the cosmos is the order of the universe, and that is what keeps us trapped. Right, that's what keeps us from individuation and from our sort of more natural, uh, sort of holistic self. Anyway, I just wanted to mark that off. So wait, what, what, wait, wait. What keeps us? He says it's it's the order that keeps us. Yeah, and the order is you know. Uh, religious order particularly political order right right right, right. human human order like again like yeah. the state exactly. or whatever yeah yeah like we've essentially created our own prisons right and but that plays this more sort of archotic role um in terms of escaping from the archons because it is really total right within these contemporary conspiracy theories particularly the ones where you're living within a hologram and this is where the sort of collision between contemporary discourses and this ancient model becomes pretty paradoxical, but therefore interesting. Because for uh, the two figures that I studied most in that particular paper, David Icke and John Lamb Lash, the idea that we can refer to like the earth itself or the body as evil is, is you know, verboten, right? They're, the cosmos or the the sort of planets can be evil but the earth is still good right as is our body and so a lot of what it's about is finding ways of tapping into the subtle body the language of the chakras and chi is everywhere here and with uh 
John Lamb Lash, a lot of what he talks about is finding these sort of practices that will raise the kundalini, right? Bring them, bring the kundalini up to uh, at least the heart chakra in order to see through the illusions of the archons, right? Or to transcend uh, this mind virus, as he calls it. And so, he goes back into the Nagamadi and says, well, the bridal chamber was clearly a form of sexual magic, right? So that is one way we have of raising the Kundalini. The tree of Gnosis, well, that was um, psychedelic. It was a potion kind of like Enkikion was for the um, Eleusinian mysteries, right? So uh, psychedelics, sexuality, and then he has more meditative uh, ways of doing it. um, particularly a, a sort of visual form of meditation. And you see something comparable uh, within uh, another conspiracy theorist that I cover in there, Carol Reimer, uh, who is, through various sort of meditative contemplative states is trying to raise the Kundalini to a certain state that she can start to see through this, this sort of archontic prison. So in a way, it's like that it's the, the very tools of the counterculture of, of, of that sort of alternative spirituality that are, are seen as, as useful or as you know, our, our, our best and last hope uh, against the, the, the archonic um, world, world order, which is sort of a, a sort of peculiar, you know, kind of a peculiar inversion in some ways, uh, and, and yet in, in other ways um, makes a lot of sense. Uh, but it's. I think it's important to mention also what, what you know. Lash is a good example of one of the consequences of this kind of thinking, and you know the fact that um, the alt right has taken up uh, one of the main uh, metaphors from the Matrix uh, as an example of sort of uh, waking up from the the lies of the liberal media. Uh, you know, to to red pill somebody or be get red pilled is sort of seen as a kind of liberation where you suddenly wake up and realize that all your stories are inverted and you know good you know whatever what you thought was good is 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 evil and da 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 that you know lash has his own version of that in the sense that he's a holocaust denier so he thinks that that the you know the holocaust is an illusion a, a you know a lie of media uh, that's been forced upon us by the sort of uh, power forces and and in order to you know create uh, whatever dissension between the races and therefore to create more negative vibes for the for the archons to feed off of or some you know variant of that that kind of story uh, and you know I think it's an important part of the the, the 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 story to bring up because of some of the inherent traps in this this kind of thinking you know this kind of totalizing uh, you know framework and and that that it can be profoundly you know unhelpful and you know and in some ways uh, morally reprehensible at least in that at that extreme. Uh, do you think that's sort of an anomalous feature of, of modern kind of this sort of mystics, mystical side of conspiracy theory or the more kind of, you know, David Icke thing? Um, is it, does it take many different kinds of forms? Do some people, you know, resist those kinds of values? Is it all over the map? What would you say from, from, what, you've, from what you've seen? Let's see here. So my, my brain was going in a, in a somewhat different direction. Um, the Just go ahead. I would say the 
extreme, the, the more, uh, this particular extreme form of conspiracy and talk of conflating archons with uh, media and, and within the art world, it's very strong, right? One of the things we were talking about at the Gnostic uh, America conference after the panel was the ways in which archons have uh, really become a significant part of the discourse within the alt-right. And they're relatively, they're not as um, pronounced at, at best within more sort of leftist political streams, right? It's, it's just doesn't have the, the same catch as it does. But thinking in terms of the anti-Semitism, and Ike has been uh, accused of anti-Semitism quite a bit. Uh, it's certainly there in Lash, et cetera, um, and Carol Reimer. And one of the things we looking at this as a site of reception history of the Nakamati is that stuff is at best lends itself to anti-Semitic readings and had a very strong sort of anti-Semitic charge, right? The ways in which they were talking about the Jewish God and Yaldabaoth were strikingly negative, right? So it, it's sort of for those who are deeply influenced by this material and, and really take it up, the anti-Semitic bent, it's, it's not hard, right? Like that's, uh, it's funny because in a way it's an example of a, of a mind parasite. It's like, there's a parasite waiting for you in these texts and it's not going to infect everyone. And, you know, so it's, it's the precise taking, you know, indulgence in that kind of absurd anti-Semitism, uh, is, uh, in, in a way, it's like that's the example of the parasite in the story, not the uh, you know not the whole sim, you know simulation that he he believes is going on. Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah, um, what was I going to say? Yeah, no, and, and you don't. And to that end, at least when I was covering the the reception of the Nagamati, you don't see a. Uh, preponderance of any of that anti-Semitism or even conspiracy theory. It's a fairly minor branch of the reception. Right? Um, so not many people have been infected by said parasite. <laughs> it's funny. We're coming around again to this, uh, this idea of the kind of meme as, as parasite, but, uh, but we're going to, we're going to have to wrap it up here. So uh, uh, Matt, thanks so much for, um, uh, for talking with us on, uh, on expanding mind. Thanks for having me. Excellent. All right, folks, uh, until next week, keep your minds open. And remember that uh, my uh, website, www.technosis.com, has uh, years of, uh, of uh, expanding minds on it, as well as a treasure trove of texts and other things. So uh, please remember to check that out. And uh, again, we'll talk next week. Bye. Bye.